In 1 Samuel, uh, we left David, when we last looked, terrified for his life, successfully pretending to be a madman, and being released from the custody of the Philistine king named Akesh, the king of Gath. His next destination as a fugitive brings us to our text this morning from chapter 22 in 1 Samuel. And we'll make the two points that are on the inside back page of your bulletin, the Christ and the Antichrist, um, the Christ in verses 1 through 5, and then we'll come back to that at the end of the text, and then the Antichrist in verses 6 through 19. So first then, the Christ, and by Christ here, I mean the anointed one, David, the future king. David escapes, the text says, and he goes to the cave of Adullam. It's it's near Philistine territory. It's on the western edge of Judah. It's a mountainous area. It's a great place to hide. And then his brothers, all of his father's house, hear of it, and they went down to meet him there, which means David's family is under threat. They fear reprisal at the hands of Saul. And then the text documents for us the collection of misfits and malcontents which has flocked to David in his little cave safe house. The text says this, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to David. Bright lights attract big bugs. David is a bright light. And now he's become a magnet for all the wrong kinds of people. It's a very big tent, this David party. Everyone with a grievance is there. They're all welcome, apparently. Clearly, these folks have some sort of a beef with Saul, or perhaps just with life in general. Sometimes it's difficult to tell with this sort of person. Either way, This is a collection of a couple hundred people that feel mistreated or oppressed or angry. And they're willing to organize, at great risk, a resistance movement. A lot of these men, if not all of them, are now mercenaries. They are guns for hire in the cause of David, who is the Christ who is not yet enthroned. And we're told... And this is a military term. David became commander over them. It's a little militia inside of Israel. David's now a guerrilla chieftain. And he's got this vagabond volunteer army in exile in their own land. This, beloved, is the beginning of the new Israel. This is the future of the kingdom of God. And he leaves the cave... And he goes to the king of Moab, and he says, you know, let my mother and father stay with you till I know what God's going to do with me. It's an interesting sort of interlude in the text. David is just being a good son here. He's keeping the fifth commandment to honor his parents. They're aged. They need to escape Saul's vengeance. And at that stage in your life, you know, the gorilla cave-dwelling life, not very appealing. So wisely, David brings them to Moab. 
Now, you might remember Ruth, who's David's great-grandmother. She's from there. So there's likely some family connections over there. Because the Moabite king takes David's parents in. David leaves, he ends up in this place called the Stronghold, which is probably some high ground you know, near the Moab-Israelite border. And then what happens next in the text is very important to pick up. The prophet Gad speaks to David. Somehow, among the malcontents and misfits, there's an authentic prophet of God. You come across this and you think, where did this guy come from? The spirit often moves just outside the visible, institutional, approved structures and channels. This Gad will remain with David as a royal advisor and court prophet for his whole life. And here he is. He tells David, you know, that he's going to have to move. But his mere presence tells you something. It tells you that David has access to the light of God's word, which Saul doesn't have, which Saul has rejected in his descent into darkness. So for David, as we saw last week, right, in 2 Peter, the light of God, the lamp of God, shines in a dark, dank place, literally, for him. It's interesting that the prophet's name is Gad, which indicates he's almost certainly from the tribe of Gad. Because way back in Genesis 49, a dying patriarch, Jacob, pronounces his prophetic blessings on the 12 sons, and he says this of Gad. He says, raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. So here we have a member of the tribe of Gad, named Gad, who's now the house prophet for a band of marauding raiders. Quite remarkable, really. The Bible's always puncturing our little pieties with stories like this, I think. You'll be a prophet for a band of rebel mercenaries. And you'll be raiding with them. So Gad tells David to to depart, go back to Judah. David ends up in this forest of Hareth. We don't know where this place is. We know where most of these places are in Samuel. We're not quite sure where this one is. But this is the anointed one. This is the Christ. And these are his people. And we'll return to this point. But let's jump ahead to the Antichrist. Saul finds out where David is. He's in Gibeah, which is his hometown Right, it's his center of operations. He's he's by this tree. He's got his sword, uh, his spear in his hand, like he always does, reminding us of his propensity to violence, reminding us that he is a king like the nations. And that spear here is a is a foreboding sign of violence, of a massacre which is to come. He has his servants around him, and his mental health is unraveling, as we've seen over the weeks in this series. And now he's fearful and he's paranoid. And he says this, Hear now, people of Benjamin, 
Notice, notice the opening. Already, there's a tribalism, a divisiveness that divides his tribe of Benjamin from the tribe of David. Will the son of Jesse, which is his derogatory name for David, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you commanders of thousands and of hundreds that all of you have conspired together against me? The, you know, the world of the paranoid, of the hyper-suspicious, is a distorted world. And of course, it often disintegrates into bizarre conspiracy theories. And it's very difficult to talk a person out of this level of paranoia once they've embraced it. There's an old bit from like 20 years ago by the comedian Stephen Wright. He would have this deadpan delivery where he wouldn't, nothing, he wouldn't even twitch when he delivered his jokes. And he's, he has one where he says, people think I'm paranoid. But you'd be paranoid too. Someone broke into your apartment, stole all your furniture, and put it back exactly the way you had it. <laughs> see, see, there's no amount, there's no evidence that can refute this level of paranoia. Everything proves it. If the apartment is rifled, it proves the paranoia. If the apartment is untouched, it proves the paranoia. Saul is in something like that kind of state. And bizarrely, and irrationally, in light of the fact that David has a handful of dispossessed people with no resources, he thinks that his inner circle is going to defect to David. That somehow David will offer, he says this, right, more government perks, more military positions. More fields, more vineyards. He now believes that all of them in his inner circle have conspired against him. So that his ordinary relations with people are now corroded. He ends up projecting his own darkness and his own motives and his own way of acting onto others. Right? He's the perpetrator here, casting himself as a victim. He is fanatically pursuing David with homicidal madness, but he is sure that David is fomenting a conspiracy against him. It's a very terrible, frightening, sad story, the Saul story. And on top of this, without realizing the irony, and it's a dark irony, he uses the very language that Samuel prophesied back in chapter 8 of the judgment the king would bring on Israel. He would take your fields and your vineyards and your sons to be his commanders. And Saul's essentially done that by bribing people to be loyal to him. How How do these conspiracy theories work in the mind of someone like Saul? They work by a kind of collusion, by a kind of conspiracy of silence. Notice he says this, no one discloses to me when my son, Jonathan, makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. So now Jonathan's in on it, too. And perhaps the low point in this chapter for Saul's emotional state is the pathetic, self-indulgent, none of you is sorry for me, that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait at this day. The fears are now so big that he thinks David's plotting an ambush against him with his own son, Jonathan's direction. 
And so into this terrified fantasy world, only one person speaks up. Doeg the Edomite. We saw that he was eerily present in the sanctuary at Nob when David visited there last chapter. This guy speaks to Saul and says this, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech. Right? He, Ahimelech inquired of the Lord, gave David provisions, gave him the sword of Goliath. And so now what Doag has done here, artfully really, in a sort of wicked way, is he's deflected the target from Saul's cabinet, if you will, to the priest of the Lord. He deceitfully leaves out the cover story that David told the priest when he went to Nob. He told Ahimelech a cover story. Remember, he said, I'm on urgent business for the king. Ahimelech was not willingly helping David. But that doesn't matter to Doeg because he's bent on feeding David's uh, Saul's paranoia here. You can read about this in Psalm 53. David writes of Doeg the Edomite in Psalm 53 and of his tongue being a tongue of deceit. But anyway, getting this news about the visit to the sanctuary, Saul reacts swiftly. No deliberation, right? Certainly not seeking to have the facts established. And so we're we're about to see that this power of the sword, which was warned against, right? This monopoly on violence is a volatile power. It's easily turned against the populace in the hands of one who's clinging to power. And that is tragically what's about to happen. Saul summons Ahimelech the priest, who is, you should note, the great-grandson of Eli. He summons also his whole father's house, which widens the circle of potential victims. And he accuses him, of course, of a conspiracy. So now the priests are in on it too. David's in on it. Jonathan's in on it. My inner circle's in on it. The priests are in on it. The priests in a city far away are in it. And Ahimelech certainly is trembling. He tries to defend himself. It's a pathetic, futilely doomed attempt. He ends up praising David. David's faithful. Your son-in-law, he's the captain of your bodyguard. He's honored in all your house. This is not going to help. He asked the king, you know, don't impute anything to me or or my father's house. We don't know anything of this conspiracy. What is strange is Ahimelech doesn't say this. Hey, I don't know. David told me a cover story. He said he was here doing your business. Like he doesn't turn David in. He protects him. In any event, the whole scene is well beyond rationality or fair inquiry. Saul pronounces the verdict. Ahimelech and his father's house will surely die. So he turns to the guards and he orders them to kill the priests of the Lord. These sorts of regimes always have to attack the church eventually. Kill kill the priests of the Lord because their hand is also with David. They knew that he fled. They didn't disclose it to me. But we're told this. The servants of the king would not put their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. This kind of state-sponsored violence, it depends on the cooperation of those who control the means of violence. And right now, they're unwilling to cooperate, which is a good sign. They refuse. 
They show you how weak a King Saul is. So what does he do? He's ordered an execution, and his executioners have said no. Well, he turns to one who would have no brotherly bond, no kinship, no affection for the priest. He turns to Doeg, the Edomite, Doeg, the foreigner. And he says, you turn and you strike these priests. So the, the regime of Saul is now a lot like a crime syndicate. Right? And nothing proves one's loyalty to, to the crime boss than killing who you're told to kill. And so Doag turns and he stabs, the text says, strikes the priests, kills 85 of them. What's interesting about this scene is that the others, Saul's chief military advisors, who said, we won't do this violence, stand there and acquiesce to Doeg doing it. So a regime will always depend at least on the acquiescence and the silent cooperation of good, decent people who won't commit the violence, but will allow another person to perpetrate the violence. So Saul, he's already unjustly targeted innocent people. He's expanded the circle to not just Ahimelech, but to his father's house. And Doeg kills them all. It's a disproportionate response. But once this spirit is unleashed against the innocent, it never stays within bounds. Doeg goes to Nob then. He leaves. He goes to Nob, the the city, and puts it under the ban of holy war. He kills everything that breathes in the city. Man, woman, child, infant, ox, donkey, sheep, all put to the sword. So that if David is the Christ, Saul is now a full-blown antichrist. He's now, get this, executed holy war against his own people, against his own priests, a holy war that he refused to execute against the Amalekites back in chapter 13. Refusing to execute Yahweh's holy war, he now executes holy war against Yahweh. Think of how far this boy has come. He seems to have been a well-meaning, well-intentioned, decent kid, raised by his father Kish. We met him just chasing down his father's donkeys, dutifully, as a young man. Spending three days to find the donkeys. Worried that his dad would be afraid that, they, that something had happened to them. Wanting to get back to his father's house and return the donkeys. This child has become the destroyer of Israel. The Antichrist. He was circumcised. He was in the covenant. Now, back to the Christ. In verse 20, we're told that one of the sons of Ahimelech escapes, escapes the slaughter. His name's Abiathar. He goes to David. And here we should remember that in his rage, Saul has fulfilled the prophetic word of the Lord against the house of, uh, against the house of Eli. Way back in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, there was a prophecy. A man of God said, To Eli, because of your gross abuses, your house is going to be cut off. You will have one survivor. Here he is. His name is Abiathar. 
He tells David the tale of what's happened. And he finds refuge. And he finds safekeeping in David's company. So that's the story. I want to conclude by making three quick applications. I'm going to call these the remnant, the rulers, and the refuge. So first, the remnant. We see that the Christ, David, gathers about himself a broken, a marginalized, a powerless, ridiculous-looking remnant, which becomes the core of the renewed Israel. So also, the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, has throughout history, even in the face of terror and exile, gathered an improbable, unworthy remnant to do his work with. Right? He starts with tax collectors, fishermen, prostitutes, the demon-possessed, and so it continues down through the ages. We heard the New Testament lesson Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many are powerful. Not many are of noble birth. But God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong. What is low and despised, the things that are not, the things that are not, the things that are nothing, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Behold the remnant. The cave of Adullam. Cave of Adullam. Even in the darkest of times, in the caves of the earth, Hebrews 11 mentions the righteous hiding in the caves. God hides and he keeps and he gathers his remnant. We do not judge the church by her appearances or by her social or cultural standing. Things are not as they appear. So second, rulers. We have a monster in this text. A fine young man apparently who's turned into a monster. But notice this, unwittingly, in this horror, this unjustified slaughter, Saul fulfills a prophetic edict, decades old, against the house of Eli. And scripture tells us in the book of Acts that in killing Jesus, the Christ, unjustly, Herod and Pontius Pilate did whatever the hand of the Lord declared or decreed would happen. It's an unnerving truth, perhaps. And it certainly is mysterious, and it's thick with dread. But the sovereign God makes even the wrath of men to praise him. All the pharaohs, all the Herods, all their wrath. The Antichrists end up purifying the church. They end up creating the remnant out of which the church and its future is built. In Tertullian, the the famous second century church father, in his famous words, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The rulers of this age are coming to nothing, Paul says. And that brings me finally to the refuge. Abiathar, the priest, flees to David, who is the Christ here, for refuge. Now I want you to notice this, what has happened in this text. 
in this ragtag remnant, what has God prepared? Here's what he's prepared. David is the anointed king. Gad is the prophet. And now Abiathar is the priest. So in this cave community, this refuge is fully provisioned by God for ministry. Right? This is a church in the wilderness, a place of safety and nourishment and spiritual growth and prosperity. This group of mercenaries has an anointed king, an anointed prophet, and an anointed priest. And we, in the New Testament, dwellers in our own caves, misfits in our own right, who have fled for refuge to Jesus the Christ, we depend. Our lives rely on the fact that he, in one person, has all three offices, prophet, priest, and king. We depend for our lives on his kingly rule and protection, his priestly atoning blood and his intercession, and his life-giving prophetic word. Oddly enough, this band of people in the cave point to the fullness of ministry and provision for you in Jesus Christ. And this means, this text teaches us, that he's with us in the distress and the discontent, in the debt, in the caves, in the exiles, and in all the fallen, bitter setbacks of life. Who's with David? Who's with the Christ? Everyone who is bitter of soul. Everyone who is in debt. Christ, the prophet, the priest, and the king. He gathers you as his remnant, but he also furnishes, preserves, defends, conquers all the raging enemies, bloodthirsty antichrists, all his and all your enemies, small and big, visible and invisible. Flee to him in your distress. Amen.